0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Rogers Ackheim director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute policy director Rachel Hoff sits down with Venezuelan democracy activist and dissident Leopoldo Lopez, who serves as the national coordinator for Voluntad Popular. They discuss the autocratic Maduro regime in Venezuela, the global network that helps support dictatorial regimes around the world, and the ongoing fight for freedom and democracy in Venezuela.
1: Hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff, and I'm so pleased to introduce you today to Leopoldo Lopez. A leader of the Venezuelan opposition. He's a dissident who has been on the front lines of fighting for freedom and democracy um, and unfortunately has come under persecution by the Venezuelan regime. He now lives in Spain uh, with his family and continues to fight for freedom and democracy in Venezuela. Leopoldo, thank you so much for joining us on Reaganism.
0: No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Earlier this year, you published a really moving and impactful report uh, with our friends at the Wilson Center called Challenging Autocracy from the Front Lines. I commend it to our audience. It's a really powerful account of your own activism, um, an explanation of autocracy and how it functions in today's world at the global level and obviously with a particular uh, focus in Latin America and Venezuela, um, and really a call for action for what the free world uh, can do to 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 counteract some of the trends toward autocracy uh, that we're seeing. Uh, Many of our listeners, you know, I want to get to the story of what's happening um, today in Venezuela. I want to get to your personal story as a part of that for our listeners today. Um, But I thought it would be helpful to start by just having you sort of paint a picture, set the stage a bit, zoom out um, and talk about the recent history of Venezuela. Of course, most of our audience may associate Venezuela with the humanitarian crisis that that is going on today, the political persecution in the country at the hands of an extremely repressive government. Um, from the Chavez regime to the Maduro regime. Uh, But that hasn't always been the story of Venezuela, of course. Venezuela has a long history. And even very recently, perhaps during the time when you were growing up there, Venezuela was one of the most prosperous and stable countries in Latin America. Um, Can you talk a little bit about Venezuela then? And then we'll, we'll get into sort of what's happened in more recent years.
0: Yes, Venezuela, as you say, it was uh, one of the most prosperous and uh, a democratic island in in the 20th century in Latin America. Um, It had a democratic government with its problems, of course, with uh, different challenges uh, that were not met. Some of them were met. Uh, And at the turn of the century, Chavez won uh, an election. And the first thing he did was to change the Constitution. And by changing the Constitution, he changed the institutional framework. And once it was approved, he packed all those institutions with people very close to him. So that was the beginning of the end, really, uh, of the end of democracy. However, it was not a um, uh, an immediate uh, pass from democracy to the autocratic regime that we have now. Uh, it was a gradual process where we were losing our freedoms um, one by one. And uh, I've gotten to learn the hard way, like millions of Venezuelans, something that might be obvious, but it's uh, sometimes forgotten, is that freedom is not one thing. Freedom is a sum of many things. Uh, a person, a citizen, is free because that person can do many things. He can speak out, he can have a freedom of assembly, or, or she can work or, or whatever she wants. So it's about a sum of things that were taking away from the Venezuelan people. Uh, it started with the press, uh, then censorship, then self-censorship, then the control of the judiciary, the manipulation of the laws, uh, then, of course, the politicization of the entire institution, and particularly of the military. Uh, and in the case of Venezuela, because at the time uh, we were an oil country, and I will explain further along why we are no longer an oil uh, economy. Uh, At the time, it was also the control of all of the resources of 96% of uh, the uh, income of of the exchange rate of the dollars to Venezuela. Um, It was a very rich state that was able to manipulate. Uh, And we were losing democracy. And this was seen by the closure of TV stations, by the imprisonment of um, union leaders, by the expropriation of land, by the control of prices, uh, control of um, all of the private sector in many different ways. Uh, Then censorship all throughout to a point where even the internet has been completely censored. So it was a process that I would say from the year 1999 until 2014, uh, it was uh, a democracy that was in decay. And even Venezuelans at the time during that period thought that we were still living in a democracy. And many people that were looking to Venezuela from outside also thought that Venezuela was a decaying democracy, but a democracy at last. So there were a lot of adjectives to what was happening in Venezuela. Some people would say it was a tropical democracy, a Caribbean experiment of democracy. Uh, Others would say it was a competitive autocracy. Others would say that it was a democracy in decay. I believe that when you start putting adjectives to democracy, it's a problem. Uh, And it's a democracy under some sort of distress or or or, or difficulty. Uh, and then came 2014. In the year 2014, two things happened. Uh, the first is uh, um, we called for protest. Uh, I had been uh, the mayor of Caracas for eight years of uh, the central area of Caracas. Uh, then I was disqualified to run for office in 2008 because I was going to win the governorship of uh, the metropolitan area. Uh, So, I started a movement, non-violent, civil resistance, um, national uh, movement, mostly of young people, union leaders, uh, social leaders. And in the year 2014, alongside with uh, other leaders like Maria Corina Machado, who is now our candidate, uh, Juan Guaidó, who was the interim president, and many others, uh, we called for protests uh, in January of 2014. Um, We called for the people to go out to the streets to protest against the fact that Maduro had stolen an election the year before, uh, against the the, the, uh, control of the economy, the price controls, the decaying situation, and all of the things that were happening to many different sectors in many different ways. And uh, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of people went out to the street. And then uh, on February the 12th, there was a big protest, uh, nonviolent protest, and three people were killed. Uh, They were killed by the detail of the Minister of Interior at the time, and a few hours after Basil Da Costa, a young carpenter of 21 years old, was killed uh, with two shots in the back of his head, there was a warrant for my arrest. So I had to go into hiding, uh, and uh, I made the choice of presenting myself, of turning myself in. Um, On February 18th, I, I did so with a hundreds of thousands of people in Caracas and and elsewhere. And uh, from that day, for the next four years, and then for the next seven years, uh, I was in solitary confinement in a military prison, then sent to house arrest, and then uh, back to military prison, then back to house arrest from where I was able to escape. Uh, And then I went to the Spanish embassy where I stayed for a year and a half before I escaped uh, from Venezuela against my will. Uh, to Spain, where I am now. So the year 2014 also marked the uh, a process of not seen before prolonged protest. Uh, it started in January, and they went through June. Uh, at the same time, there was a plunge in the oil prices. There was a collapse of a very fragile economy that depended not on oil production—and this is very important—depended on prices of production. Uh, because the production had been decaying from 3.7 million barrels of oil in 1999 in Chavez to uh, a bit less than a million at the time. So they had collapsed the the oil industry. Uh, and that created the, the, a very clear understanding inside and outside Venezuela, why it was clear that we were uh, an autocratic regime because of the repression, the tortures, the killings, uh, and the ugly face of maduro as a, as a dictator
1: Well I want to sort of go piece by piece in that that story that you present such a a, a powerful and and unfortunate narrative of the last you know decades of, of Venezuelan history and and especially what's what's happened since 2014. Um, I want to talk about the decay of democracy I want to talk about your own uh, political career about your activism and imprisonment to start you 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 uh, painted a picture of of the slow decay of of freedom and democracy in venezuela and that's something that i think is important for for us to understand um in the free world that that freedom you know it's not a light switch it's not as though demo- you know democracy is there one day and and gone the next that that it was a slow erosion of freedoms over time um especially when chavez came came to power um Tell us a bit you know for, for you you went on to run for office and, and eventually emerge as a, as a political activist and an opposition activist. but for for the average uh, person in Venezuela, how did how did life change during that time when the freedoms were slowly eroding and when democracy was slowly decaying?
0: Yeah,' it's, a, it's an interesting uh, question because it, it affected different people in different ways until it affected everybody in the same way. So at the beginning, it was um, uh, focused attacks on different sectors, on some uh, political activists, the private sector, but not all of the private sector, different parts of the private sector, um, then uh, against some public uh, servants, then, um, then uh, the union leaders. So as I said before, it was kind of attacking different aspects of freedom to different groups. And at times, um, it felt that not everybody was seeing the danger that this was going to be a trend that affected everybody. However, um, since the very beginning of the Chavez era, they, we were able to do massive demonstrations, massive. Since uh, early 2000s, millions of people went out to the streets. So one characteristic of the recent 20 years of Venezuela is that, yes, the regime evolved from a democracy to... A, a hybrid state to a full on autocracy, but throughout all of that period, um, the Venezuelan people were standing up. Sometimes, with um, not the no, Chavez was uh, able to win elections, um, but then it became a point. Uh, it came a point where they had to tweak the elections. Um, so, at the same time, uh, especially after two thousand and four, because of the uh, increase in the oil prices. There was a bonanza um, in Venezuela of uh, oil income. Uh, there was an increase in oil income, just so you have the, an idea. The price of barrel uh, before 2004 was around $15 per barrel, and it went up to uh, $150 uh, per barrel. So the increase in the state income uh, was huge. and. Uh, all of that money was mismanaged. Uh, it was, It went to corruption. If you go to Venezuela today, there were no no infrastructure projects, no schools, no hospitals, no um, no highways, no trains, no uh, electricity, no running water facilities, no new capacities of infrastructure. So you don't see any of that bonanza as a heritage of that period. But what the, what Chavez did. Uh it, he used a lot of that money, of course, many of that for corruption, but also to do petro diplomacy. He handed billions of dollars outside Venezuela, and internally, there were a lot of cash uh, handouts to the people, to different people. So uh, there was at a point in time that there was some clientelistic support. Uh, um, of course, Chavez did have his political following, but that was also very tied to a clientelistic um, support that we're getting because of all of these handouts. All of that started to change uh, in 2014 because of the collapse of the economy, um, which is a complete, and this is very important, responsibility of Chavez and Maduro because many people today in Washington and elsewhere, I, I see that they fall for the narrative that the collapse of the Venezuelan economy is because of the imposition of sanctions that actually happened many years after that. The imposition of sanctions happened in 2019, and, and the, the Venezuelan economy had collapsed many, many years before that. We already, by 2019, we already had hyperinflation. We already had price controls, long lines of people, humanitarian emergency, massive exodus of uh, Venezuelan people. So um, mm-hmm. the, the the point, uh, as I said before, was uh, was uh, 2014
1: your own election to public office, you, you, you know, you didn't originally choose to be an opposition leader or, or a political dissident, um, You chose to run for mayor, right? It was it was a career in public service, maybe a calling to public service. And then and then especially with that um, uh, that moment in 2014 that you mentioned and calling for protests and then everything that followed. um, How was that switch for you personally from from sort of a career as a political leader, an elected official in public service? And then and then that transition toward being you know, an opposition activist, a political dissident, however, whatever language you would use to to describe uh, that moment in your life.
0: Well, I had uh, um, several moments of uh, radical transitions. I I finished my graduate uh, work uh, in in the U.S. at the Kennedy School. Then I went to Venezuela. I worked at the oil industry. I was teaching economics uh, in the university. And then when Chavez came, um, I decided to resign. I had a a very good job in the sense that it was i was doing what i like to do i was doing macroeconomics i was doing um learning a lot uh, in the oil industry in this uh, office for strategic planning um and, but then i decided to resign and run for office for the constituent assembly um and i lost so i was unemployed and then i decided to run for for office to become a mayor of the, the part of caracas where i was born Uh, So we created a movement, several of us, very young at the time, in our mid-20s. We ran for office, uh, and I won. I was the underdog in that election. I was seventh at the beginning with a very low low, low polling numbers, and then uh, just went door to door uh, every day. And we built a very successful, very committed, very young uh, team of public servants, and we changed our municipality. I mean, we built... At the time that all of this decaying of democracy was happening, we made our municipality a a safe place. We had the best police. We had at the time, uh, we were working with Bill Bratton uh, uh, from from New York City um, in in putting together a similar approach to containing criminality. Caracas at the time was the most dangerous and most violent city with the highest homicide rate in the world. Uh, We created a public... uh, um healthcare system that was very very efficient uh parks uh avenues uh public markets uh theaters and that was at the center of caracas so that became a a showcase uh of what venezuela could be Uh, and that's why i was running for governor and i had uh, very high polling numbers i had 70 percent, and i was disqualified simply taken out of the uh, of the ticket with no possibility of due process no possibility of of, of presenting my case. Actually, I took my case to the Inter-American Human Rights Court, and then uh, a couple of years later, I won, which uh, marked precedent in in the Human Rights Court because it was the first case for political rights. So uh, then in 2008, I was unemployed again. (laughs) So I decided that I wanted to build a new movement. People said that I was crazy. Um, they, they told me this several times, you know, that, no, oh, yeah, that, that cannot be done. Uh, so I decided to work with very young people, uh, of the student movement and with also union leaders and social leaders. And we created a movement that was, um, um focused in understanding nonviolent movements. Um, what is called, uh, sometimes as a, um, in a bad way by autocrats. So I think it's a good way that we can also always mention that the colored revolutions, you know, what had happened in all of the transitions to democracy during the 1990s. We learned you know, about the civil rights movement in the U.S. We learned about Mandela and the South Africa uh, movement uh, against the apartheid. We learned, you know, all of the different ways in which you can start to challenge an autocratic regime. Uh, and then came 2014 and that, uh, that was also a different and a very radical change because I spent the next seven years in prison, um, um, four years in solitary confinement in a military prison. Um, and then we had to, to reshape, uh, all of our, um, the, the, way we, we organized our movement. We had at the time more than 520, uh, political prisoners only of our movement. Friends of mine were detained, tortured. Some of them were killed. Um, Many of them, uh, many, many, many of us uh, had to go into forced exile. Um, So it it was a a period of, it's been, you know, 20 years of different changes. And then when I escaped at the end of 2020, I was also faced with, again, another uh, radical change. Again, being, in a way, unemployed. What do I do now from exile? uh and that's why i decided to work with other people like me from all over the world uh to create a global alliance um of like-minded people who are fighting for the very core values of of what freedom means which is if you can if you can take it down to very concrete ideas is about free and fair elections it's about human rights uh it's about the rule of law and it's about individual rights and then within that umbrella you can find you know those who are center right center left center center you know because at the end when you're fighting for freedom you're fighting for something that is very basic and uh, one of the, the one of the mistakes i think many movements make is that they try to find the nuances you know it's a very popular world finding the, the gray areas when you're fighting against autocracy there're not really that many nuances you know it's uh, the the oppressed uh, and the oppressor you know the um, the tyrant and the people and that's a, that that that's a challenge that i've seen it's very similar of what we're living in Venezuela and in many other countries in the world.
1: Well, hearing you tell the story of your career, you you highlighted multiple moments of unemployment throughout and you always seem to find yeah. uh, <laughs> it, work hundred. of, you find of, not just employment, but work of, of <laughs> such great importance and impact in those yeah. moments. And so that's- yeah. um,
0: Because for but, me, really, I mean, when you're in this, you know, it's, it's, it's not about a work. I mean, it's about really a passion it's yeah. uh i remember when i was a kid I, I i i told my parents that i wanted to go to active public service and they said well you know uh this this is a, a difficult career and we will support you but you need to understand that this is a commitment like you know like a priest makes to uh, yeah <laughs> uh, and that was a time when things were not as difficult in venezuela and then it, it, it became difficult but i can tell you that when you have purpose, fighting for freedom, you always find a way in which you can channel that energy. And uh, and there are millions of people still doing it in Venezuela and elsewhere. And I have learned uh, the hard way, but also the good way, that these principles don't have borders. Really, I mean, when you when when you really are uh, fighting for these values um, at the very basics, at the very core, you understand. That when that the struggle for freedom anywhere anywhere in the world is your own struggle, and uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's the way we can find people to understand what we're going through in Venezuela, because this is not only the story of Venezuela. This is the story of many countries, because I believe very very much so, and that's a paper that you made reference uh, at the beginning of the program. That's my core argument: is that we are facing a global tension, a global conflict between autocracy and democracy. And whether we want to fight that fight or not, that fight is being fought because autocrats are fighting their fight. Autocrats are expanding their influence in many ways, economically, politically, through transnational repression, through control of the media, through kleptocratic networks, through uh, military uh, state and non-state groups, proxy wars. I mean, they are expanding this. And on the free world, Um, we need to be very clear that these countries that are autocratic have millions of people who are fighting and willing to fight for freedom. Because many times I feel that when people talk about Iran or people talk about Venezuela or people talk about Russia, they they immediately assume that they're talking about the the regime and the people. And we need to make a clear distinction between the regime who in all of these countries is a minority and the people who are in a majority aligned with these values. Because, you know, you, you don't need to speak English uh, to, to, or, or to be born in a free country to want freedom. I mean, these are very basic things. You, you want to speak out. You want to go out and not be abducted. I mean, you want to meet with the people that you want to meet. You want to dream and build your own future. Uh, and these are very basic things that we need to fight for throughout the world
1: you've just articulated in a really powerful way really the central mission of the Reagan Institute's Center for Freedom and Democracy which channels president Reagan's legacy on these issues which as is exactly as as you've just said is is that every person around the world regardless of their country of birth or their citizenship um, wants to live in freedom and deserves to live in freedom. That it's the birthright of all humans, just by virtue of of being born human. Um, one of the programs that we that we run and under our Center for Freedom and Democracy uh, spotlights the cases of dissidents, uh, people like yourselves who who are fighting for freedom around the world. And I think there's no more powerful testimony to and testament to the commitment, the purpose um, that, that you talked about earlier, the mission um, of this work than than the time that so many uh, dissidents spend as political prisoners. And that's part of your story, as you mentioned as well, seven years in prison, four years in solitary confinement. That's something that um, those of us in the free world can't even really wrap our our, our minds around, how, how someone, how, um, not just survives through an experience like that, but really comes out um, motivated to continue the fight for freedom. Tell us a bit about what that time in your life was like when you were imprisoned, when you were even in solitary confinement for the simple crime of, of fighting for freedom and and what impact that had on you.
0: Well, I was... Um, uh, I was detained and immediately sent to a military prison. It was uh, that day was uh, February the 18th, and and the day that you know, started. I started that day in, uh, in in the trunk of a car because I was in hiding. Um, then went to a friend's house close to a place where we had called for the people to gather. To my surprise, many, many, many more people than what I expected came out. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and that day they they threw me in a, uh, an armed vehicle from there because there were so many people. They took me to an airport. From an airport, they took me in a helicopter to a military base, then to the tribunals, and then uh, to a military prison that was an hour and a half away from Caracas. So by midnight of that day, I had the I, I, I was in, in the place where I would spend the next four years. Um, and I heard just the, how the locks from the many doors in uh, in a building that I was by myself because it was a a prison with two buildings, one with like 500 prisoners. And in the other building, it was just myself. Um, And then from that moment on, I knew my life had changed. Um, I had the opportunity to read uh, um, quite a bit about people's experiences in prison. Um, So I read, uh, because there was a warrant for my arrest um, some months before that, so I knew that this was uh, a possibility. So I read about um, the experience of Mandela in prison, the experience of uh, Gandhi, the many times he went to prison, uh, of Luther King, that he had short periods of time in prison, uh, of many Venezuelan uh, activists that throughout our Republican history had to go to prison. Actually, the s- story of Venezuela the of the last 150, uh, 200 years has been Prison, exile, and politics. So one thing that was uh, always mentioned, um, it was the importance of routine. So I, um, I, I knew that that was something I needed to put together very quickly. Um, so I decided that my routine was going to be simple, but, um, but I was going to do it every day. Uh, I would uh, do three things. I would try to exercise my, my, my mind some way, reading, writing, uh, drawing or, or trying to do something with the, with, uh, with the changes I had, because sometimes I didn't have books, sometimes I didn't have anything, uh, but exercise my head. Uh, then I would pray every day. Um, I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm glad that I had that in my backpack at the time. I just, you know, uh, I was born and raised with something that at that time um, became an essential um, lightning rod for me. Um, and, and then I would exercise physically. I had nothing in myself, but I would do you know, exercise with my body weight, and I would do those three things every single day. And the other thing that really helped me was I became aware very quickly that time uh, was an adversary, that uh, that time can play tricks on you, uh, and if you live every day thinking, uh, especially in that moment of of, of great intensity. Uh, psychologically, um, thinking what's going to happen next week, and you put all of your hopes in what's going to happen next week or the or the month uh, or three months ahead, and then that time comes and that doesn't happen, you're putting yourself in a roller coaster of collapse. Um, so I decided to just live day by day, just day by day. I would do the three things. I would uh, do uh, my vision of the future was just thinking about Venezuela, uh, I wrote two books in prison when, when I had time then they took all of my uh, all of my uh, my books, my pens uh, everything away. Um, one of the most humiliating things is not that they don't allow you to write is that they allow you to write and then they steal what you write from you. so for years even after I went out of prison um I had this very paranoid way of writing my own personal notes I mean I would because I developed a way of like writing things that I could only, Kind of decipher, you know. So I would write a paragraph here with a star, and then like four pages, and then uh, the continuation of that idea. Uh, so, uh, and 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 for years afterward, after that, I, I would still find myself kind of writing in that very paranoid way. Um, at a point, they allowed me to write, but they had a, a huge camera in front of the only desk that I could that I could uh, study and write. So imagine that you you're a prisoner. Um, Your worst adversary has cameras all over you, and even when you're writing, um, they are reading what you're writing. And um, uh, actually, recently, I I was in Brussels, and uh, I I met a Venezuelan on the streets, and and he he told me that uh, he had been one of the people in the military intelligence police that would read my writings, and that they couldn't believe what I was writing because I was writing this about you know the the what we could do in in Venezuela um, economically speaking. That my passion is oil, you know, the economy of Venezuela. So I wrote a book about energy policy in Venezuela, and um, and I wrote a book about my experience. So you know, a, a discipline, and and also, I, and I have to say this because this was my my main pillar: my wife, and and my mother, and my kids. Uh, knowing that they were doing everything that they could uh, to, uh, to to get me out of prison, my wife um, was a school teacher. Um, she was she had a TV program, a radio program, also a sportswoman. She was a Venezuela national kite surf champion, and so she was not involved in politics. And then, well, but we we both like to do extreme sports. So I, um, w- when, when I went in, I said, you have to be my voice. And, um, you know, this is an extreme sport, <laughs> prolonged in time. Uh, and, uh, and, and she really uh, transformed herself into the most effective advocate. She met with uh, pre- uh, Vice President Biden, then with President Trump. She met with, you know, maybe 40 senators. She met with um, the president of Spain, the president of Argentina, of Mexico, of Colombia, uh, with the Pope. She just went all over talking about not only my case, but the case of the political prisoners. So um, that that was really something very important for me just to know that my family, uh, because when you're a political prisoner, and, and I learned this the hard way, um, the, the real lifeline uh, that you have is your family and and your close relatives because they are the only ones who can make decisions about your legal defense. Uh, they are the only ones who can go visit you in prison. They are the only ones that you know that will be twenty four seven thinking about you. Um, and and, um, and and I knew that I had the best support I, I, I could ever dream of. So th- those were the things uh, that during the, that uh, that period. Uh, and, and what I got out of it, you know. Many things, uh, but I, I tell you what I didn't get. Uh, I didn't get resentful, uh, I didn't allow for the regime to capture my sentiments and my heart and, and make me a bad person. Uh, and I was very conscious of that. I was very conscious that my fight was in my head and in my heart. Um, not that I'm not a fighter, I'm a fighter, but uh, but I don't want my motivation to come from uh, from resentfulness, uh, from hate. Uh, towards anybody, because I think both are very powerful motivators. You know, you just uh, the, the hate and love, resentfulness or hope are, um, are are very powerful. And you need to, you, as a human being, you need to make a decision. You know, what path you're gonna take. Uh, some people don't have the choice, but if you're conscious about it and you make the right choice, you can be as righteous. You can be, you know, as, as motivated. You can be. As much of a fighter, um, motivated by just uh, the, the the right reasons and the right values.
1: Our audience will remember that we've had uh, other political prisoners on the show, former political prisoners, future political prisoners. Um, in particular, we've had the families of of political prisoners on Reganism, spouses, uh, children who are advocating um, for their for their loved ones. Um, People in prison in places like Russia and in, in Hong Kong at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party and the similarities between your stories, um, how how you manage difficult times, how you find inspiration and in the values that that drive you in faith in in routine really stand out to me. And it reminds me of something that you write about in in your Wilson Center report. Um, you talk about kind of the illiberal collaboration that happens between autocracies around the world, how Venezuela is connected to, to uh, global autocrats. Um, I'm gonna read something that, that you wrote in the report and ask you to expand on it. So you you're you say that you're often asked how a, how a dictator like Maduro can hold on to power when he and his predecessor really so thoroughly plundered their own country. And you say that one reason stands out, quote, the support Maduro receives from other autocratic regimes like China, Russia and Iran. These friendly regimes provide funding, technology, military supplies and know how, all of which are ruthlessly deployed against those campaigning for human rights, democracy and freedom in Venezuela. That's very practical support. It's not just You know, your your argument isn't just that autocracies have things in common, it's that they're working together at a very practical level uh, to shield each other, to empower each other in their own uh, oppression and persecution of people fighting for freedom and democracy within their borders, beyond their borders. Um, and also to to really work against the free world, um, talk a little bit about how you see that network uh, functioning in the twenty first century, and and importantly also, in addition to how it works, um, and what it means for democracy, what what the free world can can do about that.
0: Well, uh, <clears throat> I, I I think that it's very clear to everybody that democracies on the rise. Uh, Freedom House, VEDEN, the Economist Intelligence Unit, and many other reports um, that have been tracking the state of the world in terms of democracy, all uh, coincide that we've been on a downward spiral for almost 20 years. Uh, And autocracy has been rising. So that's more or less common knowledge. What is not really common understanding is the fact that autocrats are working together, that they are actually collaborating amongst each other uh, in a way that is non-ideological because I think sometimes many people see the world through their own ideological lens. Um, and I think it's uh, it's very important to understand that these autocracies don't have an ideological bonding. You have the theocrats from Iran to, with the nationalists from Russia or the communist party from China um, or the kleptocratic regime of Maduro, um, all coinciding uh, in a worldview that has nothing to do with with ideology, with values, and it has everything to do with autocracy. So they have created different ways in which they collaborate, and that's what I um, expose in the paper um, in in the different uh, areas. Um, They collaborate in in ways that are, some of them very evident, some of them are not. Um, But if you look at, for example, the way in which the voting takes place at the UN. If the, you take the UN Security Council or you take the, the UN Human Rights Council, or you take any other of the spaces of the UN and you would see that many times when a critical issue comes up uh, of any of these autocracies, the voting and the justification and even the, the written and verbal statements of the representatives of these countries is copy-paste. It's not only that they're voting together, it's that their arguments are the same. Then you go and see, the way in which they collaborate militarily there you see more and more military official and non-official collaboration so you see uh, hezbollah presence in venezuela and and this is you know for years we've been saying this now it's it's uh, it's it's been reported it's been indicted it's been sanctioned so i mean it's not that we are making an exaggeration it's it's fair it's this is not a conspiracy theory Uh, Then you see the way in which the collaboration in the manipulation of social media, for example. Uh, In 2014, when we called for protest, social media was an open space, really democratic. You know, everything um, was—it seemed that everybody had the same weight in their voice until, you know, came the armies of trolls and bots with funding from all of these countries, uh, primarily from uh, Russia that has been— were very systematic in, in their approach to this. Just as an example, the leader of the Wagner group was leading two initiatives. He was leading a mercenary group and he was leading a farm of trolls and bots. Those were the two arms of his uh, business holding, uh, both criminal, both led by the same person and both with the same mission. So when you see the weaponization, literally, and I think this is the most clear example of the weaponization of social media, um, this is happening all over the place with China. So in Venezuela, for example, any given day, if you go to trends uh, in, in, in uh, X, uh, you can find some trends that are in Russian or in Arabic. And you say, well, is, is it that Venezuelan people are talking Russian? No, there is these troll forms that have an IP um, ID from Venezuela are being used to campaigns outside uh, Venezuela, in Russia or in the Arab world, and you see the contrary. I mean, you saw this in the 2016, in the 2020, in the Brexit campaigns, and you've seen it all over the campaigns, how Russia comes in and tries to infect the conversation, um, creating more and more anger in the extremes. Um, So that's another way of clear collaboration. Then you see all of the kleptocratic network uh, around these countries—you see all of the corruption, the mismanagement, the uh, sanctions evasion—it's taking place in a kleptocratic network of a of a growing financial uh, ecosystem that uh, is immune, or increasingly so, of uh, sanctions, of sanctions from the U.S., sanctions from from Europe. Uh, it's it's growing and growing with its own life. It's kind of a, a dark web, if we want to make. You know, kind of the comparison—the the, the the open web being the free market, the regulated um, uh, financial system of the world—and then you have this dark web uh, that is also very influenced and, and controlled by these mighty powers. Uh, so once you see the entire picture, you see you know the different ways in which they are collaborating. I think the, the conclusion needs to be very clear that there needs to be a similar understanding. Uh, and collaboration from the free world. And this is not only a responsibility of the governments. Primarily, it is of the governments, of course, but also of uh, think tanks, of the academy, of um, the uh, the, the, the NGO sector, and of the public itself, and of the private sector as well. I think uh, everybody, once they have an understanding that this is taking place, there is a a growing... And it's not slow. It's actually been deployed with cyber attacks. It's been deployed with uh, many financial issues, um, even with new groups that are being created, like the the BRICS. Uh, It's no longer an economic alliance. It's clearly uh, something much more um, uh, around the idea of autocracy. I see more and more of that. Um, And also, that's our appeal. Most importantly, it needs to take into uh, consideration and active participation the people, the movements from these parts of the world that are talking about billions of people that want to be free. Uh, And and we require more support uh, in many different ways. And that's why we create this alliance uh, that is an alternative alliance to this this autocratic network. Of course, um, we are people that are... um, We are movements, we are leaders, we are in autocratic countries or in exile, we don't hold governments, but we all have an understanding of how important it is to continue this fight uh, also with a global dimension. Because in the past, I think that there was a point in time uh, and there might be for some movements even today that where we thought that aligning ourselves with other opposition movements from other countries would be detrimental to our fight internally because at some point that could fire back in the sense that uh, we would be closing doors with potential allies. At some point we thought, uh, I think wrongly, very wrongly so, that uh, Russia or uh, or China or even Cuba would be interested in the transition to democracy in Venezuela. I now know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that neither China, Cuba, Russia will ever be interested in uh, a transition to democracy in Venezuela or anywhere. So that's why we need to create uh, this global understanding, this big alliance with, with focus objectives and fight the fight for freedom. Freedom is not free.
1: Well, we've talked about a lot of heavy topics on today's podcast from the global network of autocracies to the uh, repression and and oppression that are happening in today's Venezuela and your own personal experience in that regard. But we like to end each episode of Reaganism on a more optimistic note um, in line with President Reagan's own legacy, um, speaking in hopeful and optimistic ways about the future and about freedom. And we ask each of our guests uh, if they have a favorite book or speech or a favorite quote Quote from President Reagan that they would like to share with our audience. Do you have anything for us today?
0: Well, th- there is one, and I think it's very linked to what I was uh, saying just before, that um, freedom is no more than one generation away from being uh, extinct, from going to extinction. And um, that's, I think, a quote that fits perfectly in what I said before about the need of a generation uh, and a generation that has different responsibilities, different areas, different spheres of influence, but it requires a commitment um, to sustain, defend, and expand freedom. So I, I feel very identified with that, with that quote being applied to this moment.
1: Well, it certainly underscores the important of, importance of your work. Leopoldo Lopez, thank you so much for joining us today on Reaganism, and thank all of you for listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.